We're talking this summer about different uh, people in the Scripture who heard God's voice and responded in different ways. And today we find in the early years of Moses a couple of different people who hear God's voice as we go to chapter 2. Now, a man from the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and bore a son. And when she saw that she was, he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took a papyrus basket and she coated it with tar and pitch. And she put the baby in it and placed the basket along the banks of the Nile River. Now, the baby's sister watched from a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, Pharaoh's daughter came along the banks of the Nile River to bathe with her female attendants who were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket, and she sent one of the female slaves to bring it to her. And when she opened the basket... She saw the baby, and she, the baby was crying, and she felt sorry for it. And she said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. And so his sister uh, said to her, would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Yes, do that, she said. And his sis, the baby's sister went and got his mother. Then sometimes later, the Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses. For she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It has been said that when people want to change history, they use battles or they use ballots. But when God wants to change history, God sends a baby. And the story this morning is about a baby that God sent into the world, and the baby's name, of course, was Moses. And Moses was born, actually, into an ongoing battle. And the battle was between the Pharaoh of Egypt, the mightiest empire the world had seen to that time, and the Hebrews, who he thought were becoming too numerous, and that if Egypt had been um, invaded from the outside uh, by Hyksos or other uh, nations, Pharaoh feared that the Hebrews might join them and fight against the Egyptians, so he underwent um, a program of trying to control the population of the Hebrews. Well, according to tradition, one day his astrologer told him that a liberator for the Hebrew people had been born that day, but that this liberator would meet his end by water. Now, of course, we who, if we know the rest of the story of, of Moses, especially in the book of Numbers, know that actually the astrologers got it partly right. For that baby Moses was born, and he would liberate the people, and he would meet his end when he came to the rock, and instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock for water, and then God would say to him, okay, but you can no longer be in the promised land with my people. But, of course, the astrologer not knowing God's voice, really, and not in a community that discerns God's voice together, had no way of knowing what he had stumbled across. And so Pharaoh and the astrologer add two and two together, and they get five. And they assume that what they need to do is then kill every baby boy that has been born, and they must kill them in a particular way by tossing them into the Nile River so that they would meet their death. By water. And this is indeed the Pharaoh's plan. And so it is at this point that, that Moses' mother, Jochebed, 
uh, makes uh, a little uh, basket for him. It's interesting, the word in Hebrew is ark, just like Noah, only this is much smaller for Moses, and then sets him along the banks of the Nile. Miriam, his older sister, watches to see what will happen, and Pharaoh's daughter actually draws him out of the river, and then we're told has compassion on him takes him into her house, uh, and Miriam ends up getting Moses' own birth mother to nurse him probably for three to four years. Uh, And then she, we are told, names the child, and she names the child Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water, which is more or less what the name Moses means. It's interesting in the, in the tradition, which is not in our Bible, but which, which the Jews had handed down for hundreds of years before the days of Jesus. The tradition was that God was so pleased by the compassion shown by Pharaoh's daughter that God announced in heaven that he was going to change Pharaoh's daughter's name now and going to name her Bithia, which means daughter of God. So in her compassion, Moses is saved. But the name Moses, I drew him out of the water, may not be completely correct. Some people believe the name really means I will draw through the water, that it indicated a future action. And if so, it indicated Moses' destiny because Moses would, as we know, later lead his people to freedom through the water of the Red Sea. One of the things Jews know, and Hebrews especially at that time would have known, is that your name is very significant. Your name, in many ways, is your destiny. So think about it. We talked about Abraham last week. Remember Abraham? And, and, and his name means father of many nations. And sure enough, he finally had a child, who had a child, who had a child, and, and there you go. Many descendants. He became the father of many nations. Joshua, who's Moses' aide, his name means that the Lord will save. And so Joshua wins battle after battle for the people of God with the Lord's help. David, who will come along and be king, his name means beloved one. And so even when David messes up, his intimate love relationship with God remains. He gets forgiven and restored. And then, of course, Jesus comes along and his name, like Joshua, means that the Lord will save. And, of course, we all know that we have been saved through Jesus. So names are very significant. It's a, it's a destiny in so many ways. Years ago when I was on a trip to Israel, our bus driver became a grandfather. So the 51 Americans on the bus were thrilled for him. And, and of course, we asked the obvious questions, which is, is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. How much does he weigh? We get told to weigh. And, of course, what's the next question the Americans want to know? What's his name? And he looked at us as like we were from Mars. And he said, we don't name a child until the eighth day because we must spend these eight days praying about his destiny before we give him a name. Moses' destiny involved water and, he be, and involved saving the people. And he begins to live out this destiny, though, when he's 40 years old, we're told. He's 40 years old. He's out in his realm because he's pretty much he's a prince of Egypt. The, the uh, cartoon movie has it right. Uh, and as a prince of Egypt, he's out in the realm, but he sees that one of his people, the uh, Hebrew slave, is undergoing, in Hebrew, it's like a severe, a violent beating. And so we're told that Moses looks left, looks right, and intervenes and kills the Egyptian overseer. Now what's interesting is we're not completely sure if Moses is looking left or right to make sure nobody else is looking so he can carry out his dirty deed and not be found out. Or is he, as some people say, looking left and right to say, is anybody going to do something about this? If nobody's going to come and help, I'll do it. And he does. But whatever 
uh, his reasons for turning left and right, that's clearly not God's preferred means to free God's people, is through uh, murder and violence. Because if God is going to free God's people by, by killing them one and after another after another and oppressing them in violent ways, then God simply has replaced Pharaoh as a bigger Pharaoh. Because the whole Egyptian system is built on oppression and control and exercising power on the people who are under you. That's just how Egypt rolls. In fact, uh, Pharaoh was oppressed. A lot of people don't know this, but Pharaoh was believed by the people to be responsible for the sun coming up every morning and for the Nile River flooding so they could have fertile uh, areas in which to grow their crops. And so Pharaoh thought he had to show up at the temple every day at a certain time in a certain way, and if he didn't do it right, that the land would starve. And so Pharaoh feels that pressure. And so Pharaoh's pressure gets put on his assistants. And the pressure gets put on their assistants and their assistants. And finally it's on the overseers who then push the power, control, and oppression down to the slaves. And God sends Moses to do something about it. But we're not going to do something about it by adding to the oppression. We're going to do something a different way. And it's clearly that this is not God's, it's clear it's not God's plan because when Moses kills the guy, things don't get better. In fact, Moses gets told on and then his father, or basically his, uh, our, you could say his grandfather adopted the Pharaoh, now wants to kill him. So he has to run for his life across the desert to Midian where he hangs out for 40 years. Um, clearly this is not unfolding the way uh, that would be fitting God's best plan. So, I want to take a few moments and say, what do we learn as we look at Moses and Pharaoh's daughter and what happens in the early years of his life? What do we learn about God's voice and God's call? Well, a few things. The first thing is this, that sometimes there's a problem in us hearing God's voice and call and then got us interpreting what that call means and how, what we're supposed to do with it. And so clearly, I think, Moses is motivated by the, the pain of his people but his actions that he takes are not the actions that God wants him to take. He is basically operating in the way of the Egyptians and solving it the way that Pharaoh would solve it, not solving it the way that God would solve it. So we realize that sometimes hearing God's voice is a tricky thing because God may call you to do something, but it doesn't mean go do it any way you think you ought to do it. And so we have to keep listening and have others listen with us to figure out how we're supposed to approach this thing. Another thing it tells us is that Moses will never be able to deliver his people until he's delivered from himself. Everything he has learned as an Egyptian, he has to unlearn. Ways of control, power, oppression, and violence have to be removed. And what better way to detox Moses than to send him out in the desert for 40 years with a bunch of sheep? Which is what he does. That's lots of time to think. And not many pyramids. Not a lot of action. And Moses is being retrained by God to not only hear God's voice, but to do God's will in the way that God wants it done. And we learn that that's what God desires. One of the interesting side notes for me, this comes from a, a great Swiss theologian and psychiatrist. His name is Paul Tournier. And Paul Tournier said this, he said, The most wonderful thing in the world is not the good that we accomplish, but the good that happens even when we do bad. Even when we mess up. 
good things can still happen. And Moses has messed up here, but he ends up fleeing to Egypt into Midian, and he gets his life reordered and restructured by God, and, and it eventually will lead to the freedom of his people, which is his heart's desire. God, God honors the intent of his heart, not the actions of his hand that he takes initially. And then the other, and to me, the most obvious lesson is, oftentimes we hear God's voice, but the voice sounds like the pain and the cries of other people. Look at the story. There's Pharaoh's daughter, and what does she do? She hears the cry of a baby, and she swings into action. Moses hears the cry of a slave being beaten. He goes into action, even if it isn't appropriate action. And then, if I would have given you another 15 verses later in, in chapter 2, you would, have, you would have come across this verse, that God heard the cries of God's people, and then the next thing you knew, know, there's the burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and says, go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Pharaoh's daughter hears a cry. Moses hears a cry. Best of all, God hears the cry. Sometimes God speaks loudly through the pain of the people around us and invites us in their pain to join God in trying to help. Sometimes that's the call of God. And I think for, uh, for years people have known this. Frederick Buechner perhaps said it best for Christians, but the, the Jews have been talking about it for centuries, that basically if you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do in life, it's usually at the intersection of two things. One is the, the need or pain in the world, and the other thing is the great gift or talent that you have. And where those two things come together is where God wants you to be at the intersection of the world's great need as you see it and hear it. And your great talent or giftedness. And when those two things come together, you are moving towards your sweet spot. And you have heard the voice of God. But know this. That Moses still struggles to hear. First he thinks, I'm supposed to do it my way. And he learns that's not right. Then he thinks he hears, I'm supposed to do it myself. But look what happens over these 40 years. When he comes back to Egypt, this is what he comes back with. He comes back with Aaron, his brother as a teammate, Miriam, his sister, and Joshua. And suddenly he has a team. When God calls you through the pain in some area of the world, God's not asking you to do it alone. But God is asking that you, in responding to pain, might open also your eyes and ears to other people and have them join your team. Years ago, I heard somebody put it this way. The need is the call. And that is one clear way to hear the voice of God. So as we tune our hearts and we hear the cries of suffering around us, we should pause. Because it just may be, in hearing the voices of others, we've actually heard the voice of God.